I've been taking a series uh, since I've been here on um, uh, the story of Moses, and uh, we've been looking at that for occasional times when I come and speak. And this, on this occasion, we've arrived at Mount Sinai. Last time I spoke to you, we spoke of that beautiful scripture, I brought you to myself on eagle's wings. And we looked at the tenderness of God's kindness and guidance, in spite of sometimes our circumstances being difficult, awkward, setbacks, battles, uh, rivers to cross, seas to cross, uh, uh, true battles to fight. Yet God said, over it all, I brought you to myself on eagle's wings. And here in this study this morning, we're looking at how they did arrive at Mount Sinai, which was a very big, uh, significant event in Bible history. The Bible is actually one long story. It holds together. It's made up of some 66 different books, but it's a story that you can follow through from beginning to end, and it's full of wonder and glory. And this is one of the most important passages, really, in the Old Testament. It's when these people of God arrived at Mount Sinai, and God made a covenant relationship with them. And so we're going to read uh, from Exodus 19, Exodus 19, I don't want to read the whole chapter because we're going to read uh, into the New Testament a little as well. So Exodus 19 from verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Don't go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And, at the, sound of the, tr and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who, came, who come near to the Lord, consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people can't come up to the mount 
Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down, come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now in the New Testament, I want to read from the book of Hebrews, where the whole book is about the wonder of the new covenant in contrast to the old, writing to Christians whose roots were in the Jewish faith, who'd come to Christ, and he's teaching them. So we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order which was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Father, thank you for these uh, majestic words, these incredible, amazing stories of men coming to meet God. And Father, you're coming down from the glory and the majesty of heaven to manifest your presence to a people you'd called, to give them this huge privilege of encounter. And yet, Lord, this terrifying experience and Father, we thank you so much for this new covenant, this new call that we have come to. And Father, we just say to you, Lord, this is a difficult passage. And we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, that you might come now, please, Holy Spirit. Rest upon us. Lead us into truth. May the truth be relevant to our lives. May it burst upon our soul. May it do us good. May we be fortified by truth and by the Holy Spirit, to live for you, to bring you glory. Lord, to be helped and comforted by Scripture. Come mighty Holy Spirit, do your work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we read in Exodus 19 and the verse 17, Moses brought the people to meet God. It's an amazing statement, really, to think... Uh, you know, you go and meet somebody. You sometimes have memorable meetings in your life. I remember Wendy and I got to know one another as students at Bible College. She spoke very reverentially about her parents. And uh, I remember the day I was going to meet Wendy's parents. And it's kind of a day I was slightly trembling uh, to come and meet them, to ask if I could marry their daughter. There are days when you kind of... Uh, uh, have in your memory days of encounter, but who can compare with this, this one? They came to meet God. Uh, Moses had met with God himself at the mountain uh, some years earlier, some time earlier, 
uh, when a, a bush of glory, a, a t an ordinary bush, was suddenly filled with heavenly glory like a fire, but it didn't burn up the bush. It didn't go up in smoke. It just kept on glowing and glorying. And he drew near, you recall, and God spoke to him out of this bush and said, Moses, and now, now we have a whole nation coming to meet with God. Now we're coming to God with two million people. It says in the Bible, 600,000 men and their women, their children. Most people would say probably something like two million people are coming to meet with God. Now, just to set this in its context, the Bible teaches that the human race is out of step with God. It's discordant. It doesn't relate to God. So that the Bible says things like this, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Everything's out of kilter. Everything's wrong. Because the Bible teaches man, made in the image and likeness of God, made as children of God, made with a capacity for God, turned from him, distorted everything, and everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. They rebelled against him. They lived ghastly lives. God wanted to judge them and deal with them. And then in his mercy, he began to find a way to bring resolution and reconciliation with the whole human race, ultimately, with every tribe, every tongue, every nation. God's purpose, ultimately, to reach out, to find a people for himself among the nations. But the way he's going to do it would be unexpected to us, but this is what the Bible teaches. He comes to one man, Abraham, and promises that through this family of his, he will ultimately, ultimately bless all the families of the earth. So Abraham carries this promise that he will be God's blessing. Then comes Isaac, Jacob, the story of the 12. Joseph goes down into Egypt. We know that story of Joseph. And while they're there, they grow to become this very large nation. They went down to 70 people. They become some 2 million people in Egypt over this period of time. Now, these are the people who are carrying God's purpose. These are the people God wants to reveal himself to. He wants to manifest. You see, man was thrown out from Eden, thrown out from the presence of God, couldn't come near to God, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, these people are going to be brought to God. A unique people of all the nations they're going to be brought to God. They're, this is the first time that God has revealed himself now to a whole nation, to a whole people. He's going to come and meet with them. And this is a phenomenal experience. The people who have never known what it is to draw near to God are now going to meet God. And so it happens on Mount Sinai. Here God chooses this place to reveal his majesty and power. And we, we read the story how he came to meet with them and how the whole mountain begins to shake and quake. It's important for us to see that the Exodus then is bringing people out of slavery to come to God. It's possible to uh, fail to understand the Exodus. Sometimes Hollywood has given its own presentation of the Exodus, the Jews coming out. So you'll find really they would think it's all about liberty from slavery. And so some of the Hollywood movies about Moses, about them coming, it's just really come out from slavery because the big issue in the modern mind is liberty. And so the big goal is freedom. Just get out to be free. You're no longer slaves. Well, of course, that's, that's a good ideal. Liberty is a very fine ideal. But the Bible says, no, bring my people out that they might worship me. That's God's goal. That's God's 
priority, bring them out to me. Now we're coming to that phase, bring them out to me. It's not just into what we would call liberty, because liberty is a, it's a strange thing really. One man's liberty is another man's problem. Your liberty to play music as loud as you like, as long as you like, into the night, uh, affects somebody else's liberty to try and sleep in their room. Liberty is a difficult thing to fight for. People these days we're talking about human rights as the big thing. My right, I want my rights. Well, what about my rights? Well, your rights and my rights, they, they get in the way of one another. How can we all be free? How can liberty be the ultimate goal that we all can be free? We're all free. That means I can spoil your night's sleep. That means I don't have freedom to sleep. Hey, what's going on? Where's liberty then? What is liberty in itself is not the answer, although it's often claimed to be the great thing today, that everyone has their rights, has freedom, freedom's the big goal. Now, God said, bring my people out that they might worship me. That doesn't mean stand around singing songs. It means living your life in relationship with the Creator again. It means lining up as you should have done from the beginning when God made the heavens and the earth and he's the all-wise, all-loving, all-wonderful God. He knows how to run the planet. He knows how to run the universe. He knows how to run our lives. And he said, no, come and bring them to me that I might be in my relationship with them. And he says things like this, out of Egypt I called my son. He's looking for something relational. He's looking to be a father to those that he's bringing out. I brought you on eagle's wings. You're my special treasure. So it's not I want to get you out to smash you, to pulverize you to dust, to get you on. No, no, I want to bring you to myself because to know God actually with faith is actual freedom. It is the way God wants the planet to be run. That's the ultimate goal and purpose of God, that he shall reign, that he shall be king, he shall be Lord. We'll have no more referendum when God is in control. No more elections, no more coup d'etat, no more revolution. He will reign. And this is one of the major steps in the program right through the Bible. And the book of Revelation brings you to the end of the Bible where God is reigning supreme, where all darkness is thrown out, where Satan's thrown into the fire pit, where Babylon comes crashing down and the Lord reigns and everybody's happy about it. And actually we do find a liberty, but it's a liberty which is his being in charge. He ordering things. And God's got rid of this awful rebellion that is in our hearts. So this is a key phase. They're coming to meet with God. It's a big, big stage in the journey, coming back to God. Come and meet with me. I want you to meet with me. But the first encounter is at least scary. We're talking about God. We're talking about the creator. We're talking about one who said when Moses called, he called Moses, Moses said, who shall I say is sending me? And God says this strange answer, I am that I am is sending you. But you must let God fill in the gaps. We don't fill in the gaps because you'll hear people in conversation say, well, I don't think of God as like that. Uh, or like this, my God isn't like that. I never think of God as like that. And so we tend to bring our imagination to I am that I am. We think, well, I, I think of God. No, you must let God fill in the gaps. And as we see this, this coming to God, that's what begins to happen. I am that I am is a strange statement. 
But here we begin to meet God. And as they meet God, some scary things start happening because his true character and identity becomes clear. And so one of the first things they're told is they've got to wash because God's there. And one of the things they're going to find out about him is his utter holiness, which is what had initially spoiled man that they couldn't live in that relationship with God. But we need to understand to come back to God, he's going to have us relate to who he actually is. Now we'll find a difference between the Old Testament and the New as we go on. But this is a very important one. They come to the mountain of Sinai. It's a place of massive revelation. And if you were following this story right through, if we spent years and years going through this story, we find when you get to Exodus 19, you don't leave Sinai until Numbers 10. All right? So you go right through the rest of Exodus. You go right through Leviticus. Then you come to Numbers, and it's not until chapter 10 that you leave. So this encounter at Mount Sinai is massively significant. It's a place where the glory of God is revealed, where God teaches them how they are to live with him and what they are to encounter. So they meet with one who is holy. That's the thing that they encounter. He is a holy God. They're told you must not draw near. And holiness is the very first thing that they are impacted by. And we find that whenever people in the Bible have meetings with God, that is what hits them straight away. I'm sure we're familiar with... uh, Isaiah, when it says in Isaiah chapter 6, this prophet of God, he's in the temple, and he suddenly has a revelation of God. He said, I saw the Lord. And, and I saw angels and cherubim, and they're, they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And he said, I was, the old translations say undone. Uh, probably it's best, I'm ruined. That's what it literally means. I've seen the Lord. I am ruined. I am unfinished. I've seen the Lord. It's like Simon. You remember Simon Peter? And uh, Jesus fills his uh, boat with fish supernaturally. And Simon somehow gets a revelation more than he had before. He says, depart from me. I'm, I'm an unclean man. He suddenly sees something more of God in Christ. And his first reaction is, hey, get away. I, can't, I don't want to be this close. You'll find that that kind of thing running through the Bible, that when people get a full revelation of God, they're scared, they're aware of his purity. And this holy, holy, holy is a a strange statement for us. It's interesting, I was reading a man called R.C. Sproul, who's a really helpful writer, and he says this, that when we try to emphasize something, we underline it, or we put it in bold print, or we put it in italics, to highlight, to emphasize. He said in the Hebrew language, you can't do that. And the way that the Hebrew language emphasizes is simply to repeat the word. So that, for instance, you'll find in uh, 2 Kings 25.15, it speaks of something as pure gold. That's the way we translate it in our Bibles, pure gold. If you look at the Hebrew, it says it is gold, gold. Right, that's the way they emphasize. It's gold, gold. We translate it pure gold. They, they, by saying it twice, they're emphasizing it. He also points out that in Genesis 14, it talks about great pits. There were great pits. And uh, he says, uh, actually, in the Hebrew, it says they are pit pits. 
so that's the way they emphasize it, pit pits. And he goes on to say this. So there are pits and there are pit pits. Uh, there are pits and some pits are pittier than other pits. <laughs> and he goes on to say, it's one thing to fall into a pit, but if you fall into a pit pit, you're in trouble. All right, so it's like the way that emphasizes to say it again. And he even makes reference to how Jesus will say, truly, truly, I say to you. It's, it's in, in, Hebrew, in Greek, it's amen, amen. Truly, truly. It's like, look, I, I, it's like I would underline this. It's the way they do it. They repeat it. They say it twice. And then Sproul goes on to say, but here, they say it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And Isaiah says, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. He's immediately aware, my language is unclean. I live among a people whose language is unclean. Suddenly, his social life comes into play. Suddenly, his own conversation, he feels disqualified, utterly disqualified, because the living God is drawing near, and he knows the way he speaks, the way he lives, the way the culture he lives in is complete. I'm ruined. I'm finished. And then the story goes on that God in his mercy brings a coal from the altar and touches his lips. And, he's, and, and God provides mercy, forgiveness, cleansing, because that's the way it has to be. But this, this holy revelation of God requires cleansing if we're going to know him. We've been singing with great fun here this morning, as far as the east is from the west, so far you've removed my transgressions from me. That's a wonderful truth of the Bible, but it has to be done. And while they're at this mountain, they are taught how to provide cleansing. These people come to God, they're told, first of all, Old Testament sort of external things like wash your robes and so on, but it's actually speaking of something much more profound. You're going to meet God and you need cleansing. And if you go into the book of Leviticus, you'll find that's what it's all about. There's lots of details about cleansing, how sacrifice has to be made, how blood must be shed. And at, the, at the center of Leviticus, the very center of the book, comes the Day of Atonement. And they are being prepared back in the Old Testament. If you're going to meet God, you need to find a way to get forgiven. If you're going to live around God, you're going to need, you're going to, need to be cleansed. You can't live near God and not be cleansed and washed and have your conscience cleansed and have your life cleansed. And so the whole book of Leviticus, which is a very strange book to us 21st century uh, Western Europeans, they think, what is this all about? No, they're being taught you have to cleanse, you have to cleanse, you have to, you have to slaughter a lamb, blood must be shed, etc. And that's the only way you can relate to God. And there, Leviticus is right there. This is what God told them while they're on the mountain. They're in the presence of God, and God is telling them all these rules, all these laws. They come to God. Next chapter, if we went to it, it's the Ten Commandments. This is how God wants you to live. Here are my commandments. I am the Lord who brought you out. You shall not do this. 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 And this is how I provide cleansing. And this is the lifestyle I want you to live. And, and these people have a kind of rule book imposed upon them. A way of living, God lets them know. You can't just relate to me willy-nilly. This is what I require of you. These are the standards, and this is the way of cleansing that I also provide. So they come into a kind of covenant relationship with God. But the initial response, as they, they meet this awesome power, 
this fire, God coming down, the God who created the universe, onto this mountain, and this fire, and the smoke, and there's lightning, and there's thunder, and the whole mountain shakes, and there's a trumpet that gets louder and louder. We are meeting the authentic God, the Creator. He's saying, now you need to be clean if you're going to relate to me. We find these detailed instructions, how to relate to God in holiness. This is the story that we're looking at. But of course, I also read to you, happily, from the New, the New Testament. And uh, you'll find in Hebrews then, this kind of contrast that I read to you, Hebrews chapter 12, where he says to these Jewish Christians, that is, their background had been in Judaism. They had grown up as Jews, and then they'd received Christ. And they live with this uh, background in their lives, their history, their, their experience of God, the way they related to God, how you had to go to the temple, how you offer up sacrifices. Uh, many lambs would have been slain in order to relate to God. Now, the whole book of Hebrews talks about a better covenant. The word better is there again and again going right through the book of Hebrews. God has been made a better arrangement, a better covenant. And so here he goes on to talk about that better covenant. He says, you, we rather, we have not come to this mountain of terror and fear, but you have come to Mount Sinai. Now he's talking simply, uh, you have come to Mount Zion. He's talking about what happened when we became Christians. We tend to think, well, I came to Jesus. We'll come to that. But the writer here is saying, you came to something enormous and wonderful and glorious. You came, he uses the same language that as they came to this mountain that filled them with terror, as they came to Sinai, you have come to this mountain. You've arrived at a place. You've come to a setting. You've come to a context, which we're going to look at at the moment. You've arrived somewhere. And it's important for us to know that, dear friends, that when we became Christians, we arrived somewhere. We, we actually got kind of one foot into heaven, as we're going to see. You came to somewhere. You came to a new place to live. You came to a new contact. You came to a place where Jesus is king, where you're in relationship with God, where your world is so very different. You come to something that changes your world. The sort of thing we've been hearing here this morning about trusting and being confident because we have a God, we have a Father, we have a relationship, we have a city we live in. We have a context of life that is so different from when you don't know God. And even that Old Testament thing where suddenly a mountain's full of flames and laws are imposed, we've come into something much, much better, wonderful and glorious, but we have come to it. It's wonderful to come to a place that you can remember. Last year, Wendy and I had the privilege of going to the Taj Mahal. Never been there before, been going to India since 1979, but I've never been to the Taj Mahal before. And, and we arrived after a long, long journey uh, by road. We, we, we went from somewhere else. And uh, you know, as you get closer and closer, you, your crowds are gathering and you get a guide, at least we did. And uh, even the outside is pretty remarkable. Uh, the, some of the arches, uh, which was even on this television program last week of Marigold Hotel, I think. They come uh, to the, uh, even the arches on the outside. They think, wow, this is splendid absolutely splendid and people are staring and taking photographs and then you go through these arches and suddenly wow there it is Taj Mahal standing in all its splendor it really is splendid and you just you see people standing staring 
and gradually you come up towards it and into it. And you have come to, you have come to. I remember the first time I went to Cape Town, I arrived and it was totally cloudy, couldn't see a thing. And the people said, oh, that's Table Mountain. I said, okay, I'll take it by faith. <laughs> Next morning, the clouds, there it was, I'd come to, I'd come to Table Mountain. Amazing, I've come to. One of the first time I went to the Grand Canyon, I was driven along up from through Flagstaff and through Phoenix, and we came. And you, it's not like it's not like going up the Rockies, where you see these mountains getting closer and closer, because it's it's not up. <laughs> and you're driving, you're driving, you park your car there, go through the bushes, and <gasps> wow, look at that! It's all down, it's, but it's vast and it's amazing. It makes your breath go from you. You've come to. You think, wow, I've come to. And you stand staring at its colours and its breadth and its depth and it's just majestic. This is what he's saying. You've not come to Sinai. You've not come to trumpets and smoke and fire. But you have come to. You've come to, you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to this wonderful place. The difference is if you're a Christian, you've come to an amazing place. You've arrived. You, you, we should stand in awe. So what have I come to? I've come to Zion. That's what it says. You've come to Zion. Now, that's another strange thought for us. Now, Zion, what does it mean? Well, it's, do you know the word Zion occurs 155 times in the Old Testament? It's obviously a very key concept. You've come to Zion. We just need to back up again. What, is, what does it mean? Well, Zion is a name for a city, the city of Jerusalem. And it's first mentioned in 2 Samuel where David, just the freshly crowned David, comes to Jerusalem and takes, well, other people take Jerusalem. And he makes it his capital city. Before that, really, Israel was 12 tribes. David established it as a kingdom. He established a capital city. He established a kingdom. He brought the ark of God's presence into that city. It became a very special place. The ark of God, the God, the ark which God was particularly identified with that they carried so carefully along because it spoke of the presence of God. He brought the ark of God into the city of God and it became Zion, the city of God. It was like more than just a normal city, more than a capital city. Because God's presence was there. And ultimately the temple was there. It was the place where God manifested his presence among his people. And so Jerusalem, Zion, became key to the presence of God amongst his people in the Old Testament. And you'll find the Psalms refer to Zion again and again and again. The prophets refer to Zion again and again. Things like this. Psalm 50 verse 2. Out of Zion the perfection of beauty God has shone forth. Out of Zion. It's this place where God shines. It's where David longed to be. David longed to be. When David was away from the, uh, uh, being pursued by Saul, he was away. He said, I want to be back. I want to be in your presence. I want to come to your presence where your presence is manifested. Again, Psalm 76 verse 2. His dwelling place is Zion. Again, Psalm 78, 68. So that Mount Zion, which he loved. Psalm 132, the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. 
So Zion begins to take on ever-increasing significance. At first, it's just a town that they take in battle. But it gradually, as they bring in the ark and becomes the center of where God's presence is, these psalms are written about God loves Zion. And Zion becomes not just a city, it becomes the people of God. Sometimes when it says Zion, it means the people of God. Sometimes it seems to be speaking about a temple. Sometimes it seems to be speaking about a city. But it increasingly becomes the place where God dwells among his people. That's what it is. You'll find, I love references to Zion. That city, we used to sing songs about the city, oh city, oh city of God. The Zion, the joy of the whole earth where God is manifested. It's there in the Old Testament, prophetically, poetically. And Psalm 2 says this, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy mountain. It goes on and says this, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me. I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. So it's the city of David is the city of the great king. It begins to speak about a place where God reigns through his king amongst his people. It begins to take on dimensions that are far beyond a little city in Israel that you can visit today. It takes on a totally, completely different dimension. It's, it's a place where God dwells. And this word Zion gets greater and greater as you go through the Bible. So that even at the end you can come to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 14 and you see in the book of Revelation at the end of the whole story it says John was in the spirit and he saw a door open in heaven. He heard a voice say come up here and he got and he saw a throne in the heavens. This is the end of the whole story. And he says in, Exodus, uh, in Revelation 14, I looked and behold, a lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000 having their, his name and the name of his father written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they all sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been purchased from the earth. So now at the end of the Bible where he's getting this revelation of heaven, Zion. And in the midst of it, the king, like a lamb. And the 144,000, not as the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, a literal number, but 12 times 12,000, it's, it's the complete company of the saved. Those who've been ransomed, those who've become his, those who've got his name written in their heads, in their hearts, and we belong in Zion. This is the ultimate goal, God's new city, that we will see fully, ultimately, one day. But here, it says, you have already come to Zion. You've arrived. Beloved, this is where we consistently see this in the New Testament. It's now, but it's not yet. <laughs> we're there, but we're going to be there more. <laughs> so it says in, in 1 John, even now, we are the sons of God, but it hasn't, doesn't yet appear what we shall be. When he appears, we shall be like him, 
in a moment will be changed. But even now, we are his sons. Even now, we belong. We can call him father. We can shut the door and be with our father. We can relate to him as father. We can take away our pain, our fears, our anxieties. We know him as father. And Paul says things like this. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we await the Savior. Now, we're living in this world, but we've got a citizenship somewhere else. We belong to this other city. We belong to Zion. We're kind of strangers and aliens here because there's something about us. We kind of put one step in another world. We live in another city. They wrote this to the Philippians, and the Philippians were kind of an outpost of Rome. And Philippi had total Roman significance. Paul could say in Philippi, when they tried to put him in prison, they said, I'm a Roman citizen. (gasps) What have we done? He's got full rights as a citizen of Rome. Why we shouldn't touch him? Because Philippi is an outpost of Rome. And Paul writes to them and said, our citizenship isn't just from Rome. It's from heaven. We're children of Zion. We belong to the city of God. We're waiting. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're waiting for the day when he gets fully revealed. When the full deal becomes manifest. But even now, beloved, we've come to that city. Even now, we've lived there. We live with this king. We live with, he's reigning, he's reigning. He's, as we heard from the front here earlier, he makes all things work together for good because he's Lord. He's in charge of your life. He's in charge of my life. He is the king. I found myself singing that old hymn quite often recently. Oh, the joy to see you reigning. You, my own beloved Lord. That's going to come. Oh, the joy, the joy. (laughs) We're going to see it. We will see it. There'll be no more uprisings, no more blood, no more battles, no more death, no more sickness, no more people fighting. Oh, the joy. That's coming, beloved. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's reigning now. He's outworking his purpose. But in a world still in conflict, A world still in darkness, a world with death, hatred, satanic activity. But he's ruling, he's reigning for those he loves. He's making things work together for good. He is governing. This is the verse that the apostles, when they first started preaching, they were told, you do not preach anymore in this name. You stop preaching. How dare you speak? We crucified him, he's finished. You don't speak. They went back, they prayed, said, oh, sovereign Lord. They quote this psalm. They said, Lord, you're in the heavens. Look what's happening. You said, and we're praying to you. You're in charge. You're the Lord. They prayed to God. What happened? The whole place shook. They're filled with power. They start preaching again. They're in touch with the king of the universe. They're living with him as their king. They're experiencing him as their king. That's how the church of God has gone across the world, across the world. I had the privilege this last week to meet with some leaders of the Chinese church some of the leading men. I had two days with them. Breathtaking stories. 100 million Christians in China. They said, we're seeing like 10,000 a day being saved across China. And so recently, the president has met with some 22 leaders who in their own sphere of responsibility represent millions of Christians. Millions of Christians. And apologize for the way Christians were previously regarded. And now there is a National Christian Church Day in the Chinese calendar. I mean, she said, well, how did that happen? He's the Lord enthroned on high. 
they're wanting to raise up 20,000 missionaries by 2020 to come out and start witnessing. They want to ask, would I go and speak at a pastor's conference in November? They, they, want, to they want to gather, they want to train a million pastors. I mean, they just think, ah, they talk. You think, how? Because he's reigning. Beloved, he is reigning among the nations. He is reigning, he is reigning. He's bringing it about. He, already, we have come to Zion. We've come to a, a king who's in charge. But one day, all, will, all that's contrary to that will go. And we'll see it. We will see him reigning perfectly. Oh, the joy to see you reigning. You, my own beloved Lord. Imagine Jesus in charge. Imagine the kingdom where he's the king. No more elections. No more referenda. No more coup d'etat. He's reigning. That's what we're coming to. And it says in the same letter, in Hebrews 13, it says, here we don't have a lasting city. We're seeking the city which is to come. So in chapter 12, he says, you have come. In chapter 13, he says, you're waiting for it to come. And that, con that concept is frequently in the Testament, overlapping principles. It started, but it's yet to come. In the Old Testament, they expected this age would finish, the new age would start. That's what they expected. But what happened was that it started overlapping. The kingdom started breaking out while the old stuff is still happening. There's an overlap. We live in the overlap of the ages. He is the king. Soon he will manifest total reign. You have come to Zion. We're waiting for that city. We're looking for it to come. And Paul is saying here, or the writers of the Hebrews are saying, you have come. Not to Sinai with its rules and regulations. You've come to Mount Zion. Look at some of the characteristics of it. It's the city of the great king. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. And it says you've come to immeasurable, uh, innumerable angels in festal gathering, in joyful assembly. You've come to a big party. The contrast with the horror, the frightening experience of Sinai, don't, where they trembled. They said, oh, oh, we don't like this. It's terrifying. No, no, you've come to a place where there are innumerable angels in festal gathering. It's just a massive celebration. The assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. We don't have time to go through all these titles. You come to God the judge. You come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant whose blood, whose sprinkled blood speaks better than the, word, the blood of Abel. We've come to a mediator. In the Old Testament, Moses acted as a kind of mediator. They were on the ground level. God's coming down on this mountain. And Moses is the mediator that goes between them. Moses goes up to God. God speaks to him. He comes back down and speaks to the people. The people speak. He goes between. He made, he's the go-between. Moses is the go-between. Now in the new covenant, what Hebrews calls a better covenant and a better mediator, Jesus is the one who goes between. And he has made a new covenant. So we're no longer slaughtering lambs because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who's taken away the fury 
He's the one who's taken away the fearfulness. He's the one who's taken away the sense of, I can't possibly draw near because God sent his own beloved son. When I think God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. On the cross, my burden gladly bearing. He bled and died to take away my sin. He brings us to God. Christ died the just for the unjust to what? To bring us to God. So in the Old Testament, Moses is bringing the people to God and they're terrified. In the New Testament, Jesus is bringing us to God as a father who says, draw near, find acceptance. Why? Because the lamb has been slain. The blood has been shed. The sin has been dealt with as far as the east is from the west. We've come to a new relationship. We've come to this massive celebration. And the Bible ends with this great bridal supper, this marriage, this incredible, wonderful conclusion to the whole Bible that these people alienated from God, far from God, have been brought back to God in perfect relationship with him again. Beloved, we're, we're, we're on that journey. We have come to Zion. We've come to him. And yet we're still living in a, a foreign territory. We're aliens and strangers here. Our citizenship is in heaven. So God wants us to live a life of confidence in him. As we've been hearing in the meeting, to put away anxiety, to put away fear, to really know he is the Lord. He reigns on high. He is the king. We already come to Zion. We already come to the dwelling place where God is in the midst, where we enjoy his presence, where we experience his fellowship, his love for our lives. Ultimately, we take that one further step, one further step. Then we come into the full blazing glory where he reigns, where he wraps up all that's gone and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. So the whole thing, which started as Eden, where God's presence was, finishes in Zion, where God's presence is. He brought us to himself. Celebrating angels, righteous people made perfect, the church of the living God. That's what's being spoken of here. That's how the writers of the Hebrews brings these things together. So let's enjoy the wonder of what he's done. Let's celebrate the goodness of God. Let's thank God we're new covenant believers. We're not in that old covenant. Jesus took bread. He said, this is my body, which is for you. This is my new covenant in my blood. Step into, come right into Zion. Come right into this place of relationship with God where you know him, he knows you, and your eternal life is utterly secure as you enter in fully to the majesty of God. Let's stand to pray and conclude. We'll have the musicians come up, please, and we'll... Worship God again. Maybe this morning, just as we are closing, maybe you thought, I do hope, I do hope that I'm part of this. And sometimes we just try and be religious a bit, hoping, that, hoping we could be included, try and keep some of the rules, try not to break the rules if we can manage but we don't know that we're safe. We don't know we belong. And yet, God wants us to know we belong. You've come to. You've come. You have arrived. It's not something we just hope 
that one day might become clear. And maybe in the end I'll, I'll somehow make it. Is that wonderful statement. We have come to Zion. We've come. We've arrived. It's there in our view. We have come. Don't, don't try to be a Christian by just going to church. Trying hard. Come through this new wonderful mediator who's laid down his life for us. This lamb in the midst of Zion, this wonderful one who took away our guilt. Come through him. Be certain, be sure. Know it's a done deal. Understand God's plan for the ages to bring a people to himself who will know him forever. Father, we just thank you so much for your, your word. We do pray that it might, Lord, settle things in our hearts, help us to live for you with such peace and joy, help us to gather others to this tremendous party that awaits. Thank you, Lord. You invite us to celebrate the feast with you. Lord, bless our walk with you this coming day. Bless us now as we live in the light of this word. Lord, receive our worship as we bring it to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen.